Well, today I want to talk about the problem of profession without practice. And you say, well, what's that have to do with the resurrection or the triumphal entry? Well, as you look at Matthew chapter 21, we've gone through this before uh, several times actually and um, on Palm Sunday. And it's always a struggle a lot of times to try to figure out what to preach on special holidays, because after a while, I mean, there's, you've gone through the text so many times, it's, you, know, you so much, get so much out of it. So uh, we want to look at the triumphal entry today, but I want to focus on the end there where it talks about Jesus cursing the fig tree. Because I never really heard someone, you know, uh, bring a, a message on that. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting, but it talks about the problem in Jesus' day of the Jewish people, the, the people of Judaism, the Pharisees mainly, of proclaiming this religiosity, but there was nothing there. There was fruitlessness in their religion. And I think as Christians, we have to be careful about that as well. And so in introduction to the fig tree, we're going to go through the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple briefly because we've been through them uh, several times before. But, you know, we don't have a monarchy here in the United States. Some people believe maybe we should, but we don't, (laughs) just with all this craziness going on. But we don't. And um, Israel was set up as as something like that originally. and so we don't understand all the, the pomp and circumstances of things. You know, my wife is from Trinidad, so she has kind of a British connection there. And so whenever there's anything on any of the news channels about royalty, about the king or the queen or the... I mean, she's like, oh, we got to watch. It's like, who cares? You know, I really don't care about these people. And, and so it was just kind of an odd, an, an odd thing. But if you're, if you're raised with that kind of mentality, and some of you may be ha- have been, you have an interest in that. And so, you know, when you expect a king who's going to come to town, you expect certain things. You know, you, you expect um, a lot of pomp and circumstance. You, you expect a lot of elaborate decorations. I mean, the king is coming, for goodness sakes. Um, and so, you know, I, I was sharing with the girls on Friday night at the, the Bugs Ministry how in 1838, Queen Victoria of England wore a crown and it had in it a diamond. Get ready, ladies. 309 carats. And it was cut out of another diamond that was 516 carats. The star of Africa. So when you stop and you think of royalty, you think of something like that. You think of a royal crown. You think of a royal carriage. You think of all these things. But Matthew chapter 21, it portrays this significant event in the life of Christ coming near the end, obviously. The cross is but a a week away. Uh, And he is, this is the coronation of him as king. And when we read through this, you're going to say, well, wait a minute. This doesn't seem uh, very uh, kingly, you might say. So let's look at, at verse 1 here and look at the pilgrimage of the Lord. It says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, 
saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the fowl of the beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt, and they put them on their uh, cloaks. They put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the, on the road, and others cut <coughs> uh, branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him, that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna! To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirring up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Galilee, from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, when you stop and you think of this point in Scripture, you know, we celebrate Palm Sunday right? Uh, Well, historians tell us that there was probably, they could determine how many lambs per family, all this stuff. They they figured out how many lambs were slaughtered during this time. And it was 260,000 lambs. And these are, this is all happening in a short period of time. All these people are bringing their sacrifices to Jerusalem for the Passover. And it was just booming with people. Uh, Probably well over 2 million people just pressed into this place. It's kind of like, you know, when we have the Super Bowl somewhere and everybody comes to that part of the country. It's just you can't get a hotel. You can't, you know, you're staying at people's houses, whatever. If you, you have to go to that area because you just can't deal with all the, the, the massive crowds. Well, that's what it was like during this last Passover that Jesus celebrated. And so he makes this pilgrimage. And uh, this basically probably happened um, on a Monday, not a Sunday. Uh, We tradition says it was on Sunday, but probably it happened on a Monday. And there's a lot of reasons for that, which we're not going to go into. But it kind of deals with the idea that, well, what happened on Wednesday? Because the scripture is kind of silent on Wednesday. But if you move everything up and um, if you uh, do some study historically on that, certain things happened on certain days. And so it just kind of alleviates that. So today we're going to call it Palm Monday, not Palm Sunday. But he's riding in for this wonderful coronation that he's supposed to do here. And so you look at verses 1 through 7, and you see this prophecy that was fulfilled by the Lord. Now, One thing that Christ is doing here is he is showing people his authority, his sovereignty. There's not one thing that happens that's not out of his purview. Okay, everything is controlled. Sometimes, you know, you watch these movies and you you, you see around this time, you know, and you see Christ, you know, bearing his cross. And it's like, oh, poor Jesus, you know, you know, he's such a victim. No, he's not. This is all planned right down to the nth degree by God. And so even this prophecy that was, was fulfilled here, the idea that he's riding in 
on a, on a donkey, on a, on a fowl. It's just amazing. You know, and it, it says that even if they say don't, you know, what are you doing taking our, our animals? He says, hey, just tell them the Lord has need of them and they'll give them to you. So God has obviously done some work in people's hearts along the way here. All right, this isn't just a kind of a coincidence. This is something that God has predetermined to happen even before the foundation of the earth. So you see this prophecy fulfilled by the Lord himself. And then you look at verses 8 to 9. And like I said, we're just doing an overview of this because we've been going over this so much. But in 8 to 9, you see that there was praise offered to the Lord. It says, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground and others cut branches from the trees, obviously palm trees, and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, John tells us that these branches were from palm trees, and that's really symbolic in a way of salvation. Um, what they were crying out was the, really the, the salvation message, God saves, okay? And so we see that this praise was being offered by this massive crowd that was pressing in on Christ as he rode this donkey into Jerusalem as their king. And I'm sure the disciples are scratching their heads going, okay, he's the king, he's the Messiah. This, something's not right about this. All right. But then, the, you know, the crowd kicks in and they're thinking, OK, well, maybe it's not a horse and carriage and a big, you know, white stallion or whatever. But you know, hey, he's getting there. That's the main thing. And when he gets there, I know he's going to just take it to the Romans. He's going to free us. He's going to be our king. And see, they're still thinking what militaristically they're thinking, you know what? Jesus is going to become this king that's going to dominate and rule uh, Rome. And so that's where the disciples thoughts are at. That word, Hosanna, means save now. Save now. Um, you know, it's, it's such a wonderful thing to know that God is still in the saving business. There's nobody out far, too far out from his arm, from his reach. Uh, God still saves people today. You know, just like he did Back in Jesus' time. I mean, people came to him. He healed them. He saved them. It was amazing. And, and that same power, that same transformation takes place today. They're quoting from Psalm 113, um, 118 in particular there. But there's several places where that phrase is used in the Psalms. And see, the whole idea here is that they're looking at, at Jesus as this Savior, but not a spiritual savior. They're still thinking, probably even the, the Jews who are crying out, Hosanna, save now. You know, most of them weren't following Christ for the right reasons. They just weren't. Um, after he gets in to Jerusalem, after this big um, parade, as he's heading in there, it says in verses 10, look at what it says, the people. I mean, they're, they're just kind of mindless. It's like a mob mentality. Have you ever seen riots on TV? How they 
kind of just mindlessly. If somebody starts robbing store, okay, well, I guess I'll go and grab a TV too. I mean, they don't even think about it. There's no rhyme or reason to it. It's kind of a mob mentality, and that's kind of what was going on here in Matthew 21. And then it says there in verse 10, and when he entered Jerusalem, so the parade's over, the whole city was stirred up. The whole city was stirred up by his presence there. And they began to inquire, wait a minute, who, who, do, who are we just shouting all these things to? And they said, who is this? Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So obviously most of them have paid little attention to what they were shouting. They were just shouting like everybody else was. Uh, and they barely got done proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah here. But they didn't even really know what they were saying. They were professing Christ. They were saying, oh, he's the Messiah. But there was no, uh, it was just mass emotion. And sometimes, unfortunately, in the Christian world, in, in churches, churches kind of create this environment where somehow it becomes this emotional decision to follow Christ. You know, you, I'm sure we've all been in services where at the end they have an invitation and they invite people forward to the altar to pray. There's nothing wrong with coming down, kneeling down here and praying. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But the idea that that does something for you, that gets you something from God, is not correct. Um, even though your emotions may be telling you certain things. Emotions never have and never will save anybody. Do you understand that? Emotions won't. So you can go to a worship concert and you can have some people singing praise, wonderful music. And boy, you're just really in the moment and you're really worshiping the Lord and your emotions are just at a peak. That's not going to save you. You know, what's going to save you is what? Comprehending what Christ has done for you. And see, this crowd did not do that. They just saw Jesus riding in and everybody's making this big, you know, deal about it. And pretty soon, they, everybody just joined in him, the whole, the whole city. And then finally said, well, wait a minute, who is this? What are we doing? They stopped and they, they wondered. And some of the crowd obviously were followers of Christ. They said, hey, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And there's a lot of things that they said just that. This is the prophet. Yeah, he's one of the prophets. He's one of those religious guys, you know. And by the way, he's from Nazareth of Galilee, if you know anything about that place. See, I mean, they're kind of marginalizing who this is. Now, these are people that have heard Jesus' message, no doubt. They've been following him. They've seen him do miracles. They may have even acknowledged that he was God at some point. But in the end, what did they do? They rejected him as Savior. They rejected him as Lord. So you can embrace Jesus all you want. But that's not going to bring you to a point of salvation. If you're just doing it emotionally or if you're doing it with ulterior motives. And see, this is what happened as he made this procession in. 
And Jesus is no doubt realizing that. He's not saying, oh, wow, all these people are for me. No, he knew. He knew they were going to hang him on a cross in a matter of days. And so this is the first thing we see here. We see this cleansing, this, this uh, procession of the Lord. And then you see the cleansing of the temple. And this is leading up to this fig tree that I really want to talk about. But verse 12, it says, And Jesus entered the temple. He's in the city, parades over. He goes to the temple. And what does it say he did? He drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. See, their religion got to the point where the dollar was mightier than God. The dollar was more important than God. And so a lot of these things, they would, you know, and it's sad to say, but even over there today, there's a lot of shops and trinkets and all the stuff you can buy, you know, wood from the cross of Christ. And, you know, it's all garbage, basically. But people buy it. They buy it. They're intrigued by it. And see, it was no different then. And, you know, to be honest with you, you walk into some modern-day churches today, and it's very... There's not a whole lot of difference. I mean, they're selling everything under the sun. I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with the church to sell stuff. That's not the point. But some of them, I mean, it's just amazing what they, what they produce and they have this and that. And Well, Jesus entered the temple and he, he realized that, wait, what's going on here? Because the temple was a place of what? A place of worship. You know, it would be like you coming here on a Sunday morning and, uh, you know, while worship is going on, I mean, what would we think if, if Samuel broke out his chessboard and sat in the middle aisle and started playing chess? We'd go, wait a minute. That's not the place for that. You know, that, that would be odd. That would be different. Here they're, they're, they're just, they're ripping off the people. They, they're selling, they're buying, they're doing all these things. And, and Jesus had just about had it. And it says he overturned the tables of the money changers. So you see this purging of this temple. You see him just uh, turning tables over and you think, wow, is he angry? Well, if he is, it's righteous anger. I don't know if he's so much angry as he might be frustrated. Thinking, man, I've been here three years and these people just are not getting it. It says he overturned the tables of the money changers. These are people who took advantage of those who were less fortunate. They would come with an offering maybe and, oh, you know, you, you, wanna, you have a 20 and uh, you, you want to give uh, an offering? Well, you know, sorry, all I have is, is, is for change is 10. <laughs> so, you know, obviously they would give them the 10 and they would keep the other five. It's just a, a ridiculous kind of a thing. It's, it was a Ponzi scheme really going on. And Jesus was tired of it. And he said, in the seats of those who sold pigeons, those who came would, would sometimes they'd bring a lamb, but sometimes they'd have a pigeon, that whatever, they'd sell the sacrifice kind of a thing. And if you didn't have a sacrifice, you were thought less of. So they obviously had one right there. You know, it's, it's, it's like when you go to a ball game and they have the, the uh, program, you know. I mean, you know what's going to happen. It's a ball game, right? I mean, you don't have to buy a $10, $15 program. I mean, if you want to keep it as a namesake, that's fine. But, I mean, you don't need it. But, boy, they make you feel like you need it. And you look at the billboard, and all the ads are up there. They got popcorn. It's like when you go to the movies. They got popcorn. They got, you know, sodas. They got all the stuff. And they're, they're, they're trying to entice you to buy stuff. 
Well, that was no different here in this situation. And so Jesus basically had, uh, had, had, had had it here. He had, he had come into Jerusalem and then basically after spending uh, Monday night in Bethany, he went back into Jerusalem and here he is in the, the temple and he's ready for, uh, to, to kind of clean it out to make sure that his father's house does not become a um, house of, of thieves. And so you see that he was on this divine mission in verse 12. He entered the temple. He went right in. I mean, remember, he's God. Okay? So there's no problem here with him going into the temple. But he knew exactly what God wanted him to do. And you see in verse 12, his divine authority. Because he overturned the temples of the the money changers, the seats of those who sold pigeons, all kinds of things were going on there. Now, this was a place of worship. It would seem like, wow, he's being disruptive. He's being, you know, uh, disrespectful. But no, he's trying to bring respect back to the place of worship. I remember reading about Martin Luther and his hatred of all the, the Catholic indulgences, all the things that the Catholic Church back in his day um, made people buy. And if you bought these things, then you would earn God's grace. Or if you did certain things, you would earn God's grace. And you've probably all seen the movie of, of Martin Luther. And out of that, what? The Protestant Reformation was born. And so today, as believers, we should really cry out as, as Luther did for Christ to cleanse the church. Because what has happened, unfortunately, with the modern church is that the modern church has invited the world in. They've invited the world in, in the name of evangelism, but they've invited the world in. And to get the world to stay in a place that's supposed to be holy, what do you have to do? You have to compromise. Because light doesn't like darkness, and darkness doesn't like light. So you, you, you kind of begin to mix this up a little bit, and you end up with this convoluted idea of what we call the church. And that's when Jesus says here in verse 13, he shows his commitment to divine scripture. He said, it is written. In other words, you know, haven't you heard? He's kind of saying, boy, don't you remember this? My house shall be a be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Notice he says, my house. He was God. He had every right to say that. My house shall be called a house of prayer. And, and when you stop and you really assess what Jesus is doing here, you can see that he is bringing out his commitment, not just his authority, but also his commitment to divine scripture. But then in verse 14, it says, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. And what did he do? See, this is why he wasn't, he wasn't irritated. He wasn't, he was just doing something that was pretty understandable that God would do in this kind of a situation. You know, you see pictures of Jesus in there and his eyes are a blaze of glory and he's tossing stuff and, you know, all this. I don't think it was that way at all. 
I think it was very, uh, very direct. He was very authoritative, but I don't think Jesus lost his temper here like a little kid and started turning over tables and, what are you doing? That's not the gist of, of what happened here. Because in the very next verse, it says, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. And what did he do? Get away from me. You know, I'm tired. Of... No. What did he do? He had compassion on him. You see his divine compassion, his divine power. And, and these are people that, as we talked about, I think last week, or uh, I forget when it was, but the, the people wouldn't, the, the religious leaders would have anything to do with these kind of people. Blind, lame, these are kind of cursed people. There's something wrong with them. They must have sin in their life. They're unholy people. But Jesus, in the temple, it says he healed them. And you see the outrage here from the religious people. It says, but when... Uh, But when the chief priest, verse 15, and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, notice, they're viewing these things as wonderful, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, look at their response. (laughs) They were what? Indignant. They were upset. They were frustrated. That word indignant has the idea of just, they just blew it just seething wrath. They were so upset. Why? Because really he was challenging their what? Their religious control. I mean, ever since Jesus had come onto the scene, they've been trying to trap him. And every time they have a showdown somewhere, what happens? Jesus comes out looking pretty good every time. Even though they thought, well, this time we really got him. What's he going to say this time? Or what's he going to do this time? And you see it throughout the ministry of Christ. And they forgot. They didn't know. They didn't understand that they're dealing with God. They're not just dealing with some guy from Nazareth. They're dealing with the very creator God. And so these Pharisees had charged Jesus with all kinds of things. They said that, yeah, well, you know what? We know that you can do these things. But uh, in Matthew 12, the the Pharisee said, we think that you cast out these demons. You make these people whole. We we can't argue with that because obviously we see it. But you're not doing it by the power of God. You're doing it by the power of Satan. Remember that? I mean, that's just a crazy, crazy accusation. But they didn't know where else to go. And so now they probably thought the same thing here about this healing. They thought that, you know what? Um, yeah, he did this stuff because he did it right in front of us. They're wonderful things, they say. But you know what? We don't, uh, we don't appreciate that you kind of stealing our thunder. Um, and Jesus said to them, uh, and they said to him, do you hear what they are saying in verse 16? They're kind of talking amongst themselves. Hey, man, do you hear what these people are saying? They're really getting behind this guy. This is kind of dangerous for our control. What are we going to do about it? And Jesus said to them, now remember, this is like a massive crowd, right? I mean, even in the temple there, people are pressed in their sacrifices going on, all this stuff. And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? So he answers them, even though they didn't really ask the question of him. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. 
So we see the approach of Christ, which is a good principle for us when we're dealing with people who have yet to put their faith or trust in Christ. Sometimes they're indignant, right? Sometimes they're, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear the truth. And, you know, probably the worst thing that you could do is dial down and go to them nose to nose and just have a big battle. That's not what God wants you to do. See, what Jesus did is, you know what, what did he do? He just gave him truth. So, you know, hey, I'll just leave you with this. <laughs> and then just walk away and let that kind of ruminate in their mind. You know, we don't have to defend God. We don't have to stand up for God. God's perfectly capable of standing up for himself. And so he's showing us here that, you know what, through the journey into Jerusalem, all these people coming out, and you see them, you know, all, boy, they're all praising him. You see the, the cleansing of the temple. The religious leaders are rather upset with him because they're stealing his thunder. They're cutting into their share of the prophets probably. They probably had a hand in all that as well. And the majority of the Jews, by the way, uh, they have no interest in somebody who's going to be the son of righteousness. You know, somehow if Jesus can do something for me that will be beneficial to me, then I'm in. And that's no different than what we have today. People, so many times, they look at Christ, you share the gospel with them, and they say, well, what's in this for me? I mean, it just sounds like you're telling me I can't have any fun anymore with your Christian God, you know. Um, so why would I want to do that? Um, and, and so we have to remind ourselves that's, that's no different really than, than these folks here. They're, they're really blinded. They're deceived. They're looking for a Messiah who can do something for them, most of them militaristically in Jesus' day. But in today, even, we, we look for a Messiah sometimes that can help us with our health or help us with our finances or help us with our family or help us with our kids or help us with our marriage. The list goes on and on and on. In other words, we want Jesus to meet our felt needs. What's he going to do for me today? And you know what? If he's not going to do anything for me, I have no interest in following this guy. Because in the end, number uno is important. And, and that's an important principle to kind of look at and take away from this is that, you know what? The reason you come to Christ is not all the, the felt needs that Jesus can, can meet. The reason you should come to Christ is because you're driven because of your sinfulness, your unrighteousness, you realize that God is holy and you are not and there's no fix in the works. You can't go take a bath and clean yourself up. You can't commit to a life of poverty and service and somehow that's going to work. The Bible says our works are what? It's filthy rags. So in the end, the only thing that is going to fix that sin problem is not you coming to church or going to Bible study or praying before your meals or reading your Bible. None of that stuff is going to fix it. The only thing that will fix sin is what? The Savior is Christ. And so you can see where these people are on a whole different wavelength. And so it says there that he left them and he went out of the city of Bethany and he lodged there. Probably to be with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the other disciples there. What tells us in verse 
18, and this kind of comes to the purpose of our message. We see here in verse 18, in the morning he was returning to the city. <clears throat> He'd become hungry. That denotes that he was what? God, but he was also human, right? He was fully human, fully God. He got hungry just like we get hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the, the wayside, he went over to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. Now, this is kind of important to understand this. You know, here we have Monday morning, Passover week. Jesus rode into the city on a donkey. Um, he was welcomed, shouted out, Hosanna, all this stuff. Uh, they put their palm trees, their clothes on the road. On Tuesday, he came again. He cleansed the temple of the sacrifice, uh, the, the merchants who were trying to rip people off, the money changers. He goes back on Wednesday. And this is what I meant. If you have Palm Sunday on Monday, it takes care of Wednesday in the chronology of this whole thing. On Wednesday, he entered Jerusalem for the third time. Um, and in Mark, it tells us that he encountered this, this fig tree. But, you know, each, each gospel account is a little, little different here. But what's interesting about this is that when he looked at it, you see the, the circumstance here. He returned to the city. He was hungry, and he saw this lone fig tree by the road. And he comes to it, and obviously he's hungry, so he's looking for something to what? Eat. But there's nothing on it except leaves. If you ever travel in the Middle East, figs are a big deal. I mean, they eat figs all the time. They eat, you know, morning, noon, breakfast, dinner, all, the whole thing. It's kind of like a little... Um, side thing. But what's interesting here is that, you know, when he sees this tree, he's hoping that it will meet his need. And they were very common. They were all over the place over there. Um, and from what I've read, fig trees, basically, when they, they have leaves on them, uh, basically twice a year, and usually the fig comes out first before the leaves. And at that point in time, you, you could eat the fig, but it's probably not going to, it's not real good. You know, you can still eat it. It's edible, but it's not real tasty. And so then the leaves come out on the, the tree, and then the figs begin to ripen. And so this is what Jesus is saying. He's seeing this fig tree with leaves on the outside, and when he gets there, there's nothing on it. Um. And that's usually what would, would happen with a fig tree. Usually you would find figs if it had leaves. It bore fruit twice a year. First time in early summer. And sometimes they'd even go year-round. But by April, a fig tree at the altitude in Jerusalem would not only usually either have full of fruit or leaves... But Mark tells us that it was not season for the figs. It wasn't time for the figs. So this fig tree deal was kind of thrown into this scenario. And you, you read it and you go, wow, what is he doing here? I mean, he's just walking down the road. He's hungry. And so he goes over to this fig tree and there was nothing on it. Seeing the, the fig tree by the wayside, he went to it. He found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. 
And you're thinking, wow, what's this guy's problem? And the fig tree, what? Withered at once. At once. Instantly. So you can see the power of Christ over creation. This is one of the few accounts where, where Christ actually uh, curses his creation. Well, what's he trying to point out here? He, he's trying to point out, basically, the danger of professing Christ without any substance, without any practice, without any fruit. He's trying to pull this illustration out of this poor little fig tree. Jesus' point here regarding the fig tree was that Israel as a nation had a very impressive religious background. A lot of pomp and circumstances, all this stuff. That's represented by the leaves. But you know what? There was no spiritual fruit. Remember, the nation of Israel was given the word of God, right? They were God's chosen people. And God said, look, I want you to take this and I want you to be a light to all the nations. And what did Israel do? As a nation, they took it and they hoarded it. They said, ah, we're God's favorites. We have his word. All you Gentiles, stay away. They lost the purpose for which God had chosen them. And so during this time, they became very, quote, religious. They had their Judaism. They had all the the pomp and circumstances of everything going on. But you know what? They had no fruit. There was no power in their religion. See, fruit in the Bible is always an illustration of true salvation. I used to tell kids as a youth pastor, no Jesus, no change, no change, no Jesus. Don't come and tell me, oh, you gave your heart to Christ. I really don't care. Let me see some change in your life. Let's see what God is doing to transform you into the person that he desires you to be. Because salvation is not just a mental assent to what Jesus says or what the Bible says. There's a lot of people that teach in seminaries that know a lot more about Scripture than any of us. But you know what? They're probably not saved. They know all the stuff. But God has never transformed their life. God has never changed them as individuals. See, when you think of fruit, think of the parables of the the soil, the parable of the the soils. And, you know, when you you stop and think of fruit, think of John 15, 5, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears what? Much fruit. In other words, it's going to be obvious. You don't have to wonder about your salvation. You don't have to scratch your head at night and go, I don't know if I'm saved or not. Is God doing anything in your life? Plain and simple. Do you have a desire to read the Bible, to study the Bible? Do you have a desire for prayer? Do you have a desire to fellowship with God's people? Those are all indicative of somebody who has been transformed by the grace of God. If you don't have those things, or they're even happening sparsely, you might want to question your own salvation. You might want to say, wait, am I making a profession of faith without any 
semblance of faith, without any practice, without any fruit? Or is there something really going on here? So in the case of Israel, they bore no spiritual fruit. And that was a sign that they were what? Unredeemed. They were cut off from life, from the power of God. I mean, when we look at the different religions that we have in the world today, most empty religions usually have some kind of outward form of of trappings or uh, clerical garments or vestments or whatever. They, They make it look real good on the outside. And you're going, wow, you know, it smells good in that place. They light candles. They have all these statues. And the guy comes out and he, man, he's dressed like a king. And you just sit there in awe and wonder. That doesn't mean squat to God. As a matter of fact, it's an affront to God. Empty religion is also usually characterized by empty prayers. Empty prayers. Repetitive prayers. They're wordy. They're self-glorifying. At one point, Jesus even says, don't pray like the pagans do with meaningless repetition. I did that for 19 years of my life, beloved. Maybe not 19, at least until I could talk. I was raised Catholic. And I remember going to church, man, you say, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. And you rattle that thing off. And when you go to the confessional and the priest says, okay, you know, uh, it sounds like you did something not good there, uh, Mr. Steve. You go out there and you say five our fathers and three Hail Marys and, uh, and you'll be good to go. You know, so I go out, kneel down on the little kneeler in the church, and I start rattling those things off. And I look at my watch, 45 seconds had gone by, and I'm done. I'm good to go. Till next week or next month or whenever I came back to confession. The words meant absolutely nothing to me. Probably told you this before, but for years, the prayer Hail Mary, H-A-I-L, I prayed hell. Hell Mary, full of grace. The Lord, just being an ignorant Catholic, and you say, how could you do that? I don't know, but I did. And it wasn't until I was in Bible college when the professor wrote up the prayer on the board in apologetics class talking about what Catholics believe, and I just sat there dumbfounded, and I went, whoa. And they're like, well, that was new, you know, a brand new Christian. They're like, what's wrong? And I said, you're not going to believe this. But for many years, I was not saying hail Mary. I was saying hell Mary, full of grace. Why? Because there was a complete separation between that religion and who I was as a person. It had nothing to do with my life. It was just something I did every week. And I thought somehow that God was going to look down on that through all the, the outward trappings and through all the meaningless repetition, self-righteous prayers, 
I thought somehow God was going to say, okay, yeah, he's just a good kid. I'll let him into heaven. As a matter of fact, I didn't even care. I didn't even think about heaven. I wasn't even thinking, oh, where am I going to go when I die? I didn't think about death. I mean, it wasn't until probably my brother asked me, well, what do you think is going to happen when you die? I thought, that's a weird, what are you, weird? That's a weird question to ask somebody. I just thought that was so odd. Well, you know, the Bible says we're all going to die one day. And you start to think about it and you're thinking, wow, if you've never thought about it before, it's really a lot to think about. But see, when you're trapped in something like that, you see it very clearly. And this isn't the first time that Jesus used the illustration of this barren fig tree. Um, he, He used it before in Luke chapter 13. But the, the point here of this is simply this, is that sometimes, even as Christians, we can get caught up in our religious practice and we're just going literally through the motions. Um, you're not really um, focusing on the worship. You're not focusing on the, the, the teaching. You're not focusing on You're just kind of coasting. And that's a very, very dangerous place to be. And so you see this aspect of this, uh, the, the, the cursing of this, this fig tree. But then we, we see that the disciples marveled at this. They're just confounded at what was going on here. In verse 20, it says, When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And you think, Duh! I mean, you just saw this guy heal people, blind people. You know, he's going to say, you know, curse this little fig tree. That's a surprise to you. Come on. But you can tell where their heads were. How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them. And he kind of gives them a little lesson here on prayer. You know, he once again... You know, he's making a point here, pointing out the danger of profession without possession of Christ, the danger of, of portraying yourself to be religious without any fruit. That's kind of what he's pointing out as an illustrative matter. And they're concerned about, how did you get to do that? Wow, that was really cool. You know, and it's, it's, they're just like ADD. They're just focused on the wrong thing like all the time, I guess. And so he had to bring them back. And he's like, wait a minute. You know, he didn't, didn't get angry with them or whatever. He's very patient with them. But he says that um, in verse 21, And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, look at what he says, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, And he points to a mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Now, this is not a prescription for moving mountains. This is illustrative. This is what Jesus is saying. He's not talking about literally casting a mountain into the sea. Um, I mean, that would have been maybe pretty impressive (laughs) for people, but he's doing a lot of impressive stuff. All these miracles were going on. Um, it's, it's usually a, uh, there's a metaphoric uh, phrase here when he says, rooted up 
of the mountains. It's commonly used in Jewish literature of a great teacher or spiritual leader. Uh, MacArthur says in the Babylonian Talmud, for example, the great rabbis are called rooters up of mountains. Such people could solve great problems and seem to do the impossible. So that's the idea that Jesus had in mind. He was saying, you know what, I I want you to know that through Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to have unimaginable power. And it's going to be available to you through faith. That's what he closes off here in verse 22. He says, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will what? Receive if you ask in faith. So he makes this whole cursing of this fig tree into this illustration of faith and prayer. Remember, this started, you know, Jesus has just got some, you know, stomach cramps going on. He's hungry. (laughs) And he's just looking for something to eat. And yet he turns this whole thing into this incredible illustration for those who were with him. So what do we take away from this? You know, James tells us in James chapter 4, verse 3, that we can ask for things and we don't receive them. But James warns us that we ask with what? Wrong motives. So that we may spend it on our pleasures, it says. First um, John 5.14 tells us that this is the confidence we have before him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. See, this kind of mountain-moving faith, you might call it, is, is something that's not selfish. It's not something you would take and just use for yourself. It's, it's very unselfish in its motives. It's undoubting, it's unqualified, and it's confidence in God that God is going to take care. He's going to deal with whatever needs to be dealt with. Trusting faith is really, it comes from God and God alone. This isn't something you've got to work up within yourself. See, and that's, it goes back to the idea that, you know, when God has transformed you, when God has made you a new person in Christ, you're going to see a difference. You're going to look at your life different. You're going to look at your problems different. You're going to look at everything different. Why? Because God has gifted you with the faith to believe that he will care for you no matter what happens. In Matthew 17, verse 20, when Jesus asked, when the disciples asked Jesus why they couldn't cast out that demon, do you remember that? He said, because of the littleness of your faith. (laughs) Wow. Wow. For truly I say to you, if you have the faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it shall move. And here's the point. He says, nothing shall be impossible to you. See, as believers, the Bible calls us overcomers for a reason. We don't have to just, you know, throw our shoulders up and go, well, you know, the world's just going to hell in a handbasket, so I don't know what we're going to do. No. God calls us to be overcomers. Jesus here was not, you know, commending small faith. It was the littleness of the disciples' faith that prevented their success in casting out the demons. He He rebuked them for having small faith that stayed small. See, so many Christians, they come to Christ, and you know what? 
They're legitimately saved, but they're not fed correctly. They don't get the proper exercise spiritually. They're not serving in any church anywhere if they're even going to a church. And they're wondering, wondering while, why their spiritual life is not healthy. It's the same thing with us as humans. I mean, if we feed, eat bad stuff and we don't exercise and we don't do all these things, we're not going to end up on the good side of the health situation. And so God wants us to know that, you know what? He is there for us. Yes, he rode into Jerusalem that day as a king. But he also took care of business in Jerusalem, in the temple there. And I think that it's, it's important that, you know, when we look at this withering of this, this fig tree, it wasn't Jesus, you know, ticked off from the temple and walking by a fig tree. Ah, curse you too. He wasn't acting like a little child. He was acting like God. Because the religion of Israel focused on the leaders. It wasn't producing fruit. It was really, he was speaking out about hypocrisy. And the principle is that any religion like that will not last very long. It will wither up because there's nothing feeding it. There's no fruit there. There's nothing, there's no life there really is what Jesus' point is. And that's really what Israel's official religion has become. It's become dry, useless. It failed to bear genuine fruit. But you know what? That can happen to any one of us, beloved, who merely profess Christ. Yeah, I came to Christ. You see the gathering of people and you see the leaves, but there's nothing underneath the leaves. There's no fruit there. The fruit of the Spirit, by the way, it's not plural, it's singular. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You know, when the people called Jesus Lord, there was a reason. He was calling them his master, their master. He was describing, they were describing themselves as Jesus' what? Servants. But even on occasion, they disregarded his teaching. We can sit here all day long and study the Bible and do that, but it comes down to where your heart is. If you've trusted in Christ, I pray you have. It's a wonderful thing. But at the same point, you should, it should be very evident to you that God is making a difference through you and in you. Because if you belong to Jesus Christ, you will produce spiritual fruit. Bottom line. I wouldn't lie to you. You know, we're not here to play a shell game. If you don't produce spiritual fruit, guess what? You don't belong to him. And you need to come afresh to the Savior. Father, we pray this morning for your word. We pray that it would fall on willing hearts. Lord, as you rode into Jerusalem that day, all these people celebrating, crying out to you, Hosanna. 
And yet, in a matter of days, they were cursing you. Because there's no fruit there. They were making a profession without any possession of Christ. And I can't help to think that even today, that there may be some here today who've made that profession of Christ in their life. Maybe they raised a hand in a service or walked down an aisle at some point, or maybe they made a profession of Christ in a Sunday school at a young age. But it's been just that. It's, well, I'm a Christian. And that's not good enough. That's not what God wants from you. He wants everything there is. Jesus said in the New Testament, if you're, if you're going to follow me, this is Jesus speaking, if you're going to follow me, you need to take up your cross, instrument of death, daily. Set your needs aside. It's not about you anymore. And that's such a, a vivid picture of what it means to come to Christ. Come to Christ means dying to yourself. Giving up your agenda for His. Allowing your heart and your life to reflect His righteousness because you realize you have none. That's why we need a Savior. Because we can't save ourselves. And so, Father, we pray this morning that if there's any here who's yet to put their trust, their faith in Christ, that they would cry out, even this morning in the quietness of this moment, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. I recognize my sin. I recognize your holiness. And I need something in between that, and that's Christ. And he'll, he'll help you along the way. He'll change you. This isn't something you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and try harder every day. It's the Spirit that does the work in and through us. It's not a work of the flesh. It's a work of the Spirit. And so we pray that. We pray for us believers, Lord, that we'd be encouraged, even this week, to share the message of the gospel with those around us. And, Lord, that we would look forward to our Good Friday communion service as well as our Resurrection Sunday service. And, Father, we just thank you for your goodness and pray that you would uh, just dismiss us with your blessing. We thank you and we uh, praise you in, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.